Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Samantha Cooper, and each episode presents my conversations with musicologists, ethnomusicologists, and sound study scholars who specialize in the music and sound of Jewish experience. I am absolutely delighted to welcome you to today's episode featuring Dr. Rachel Edelstein. Hey, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Hi, Sam. I'm very excited to be here and talking about Jewish music with you. Tell me a little bit about yourself. How would you describe what you currently do and what you're currently working on? My name is Dr. Rachel Edelstein. I am an ethnomusicologist, and I'm also the ritual coordinator at Congregation Beth El Kesser Israel in New Haven, Connecticut. That sounds like a mouthful. We just call the synagogue Becky. And the work that I do as an ethnomusicologist encompasses a lot of Anglophone progressive liturgical music. And what it means is that I study reform and liberal and conservative and consorti music, mostly in the United States and in the UK. But I would love to expand this work into Canada, to Australia, to South Africa, places like that. Awesome. Tell me a little bit about one of your earliest encounters with Jewish sound or music and why this was such a formative experience for you. For as long as I can remember, my aunt and uncle have hosted Passover. And Passover was one of my favorite holidays. There's a ritual to it, but it's family coming together for a big party with a big fancy dinner. And our family Passover Seder is in some ways very conventional. We have a Haggadah, we are an Ashkenazi family, and we follow a lot of Ashkenazi traditions. And at this party, we sing because that's what you do at the Passover table. And it's a moment when everybody lets loose. It's like dancing at a wedding. So I love family and the group and the singing and this sense of everybody sort of being in the zone with each other. And the thing that made me, as I grew up, realize that this was something worth looking at, worth kind of taking seriously, is that we have some family melodies that are different. I said that our Seder is in general a fairly typical Ashkenazi family Seder, but we have some melodies that are very different, that are not the traditional Ashkenazi American family melodies that I have never heard anywhere else in the world. I could probably at some point find versions of them in Edelson's Thesaurus Hmm. if I knew where to look. We have a couple of songs that are not in Hebrew that are in Aramaic, that are very different sounding than the Hebrew versions. The family legend, which my uncle told me, is that a distant cousin named Finkelstein was traveling in the Yeshuv in the 1920s and picked up these melodies and thought they were great and wrote down the words in transliterated Aramaic and sort of remembered the melodies, brought them back to Chicago and taught his family, which eventually filtered down through various cousins into our family. So we have these family song sheets that don't have lyrics. They have the words transliterated from either Hebrew or Aramaic, and we pass the melodies on orally. And they're amazing melodies. So you might sing Echad Mi Yodea, which is pretty standard tune. And I don't know that song. Hmm which just boggled the mind of one of my Hebrew teachers at one point. Everybody knows Echad Mi Yodea, she said. How do you not know this? Echad Mi Yodea, Echad 
And my answer is because we don't sing that. We sing Ahad Man Yada, which is not just singing the text. It's a game. Hmm. It's a back and forth call and response leader playing the role of the teacher, everybody else playing the role of the eager students. We've all had a minimum of four glasses of wine to drink. (laughs) We sing this song. It's fun. It is wildly different than Echad Mi Yodea, however that goes, because I don't know it very well. Achad man yada, man yada. Achad anu yada, anu yada. Bum, bidlium, bum, 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 bidlium, bum, bum. And then we kind of, we go on and then there's the call and response. And everybody lets loose singing this. And so I love this. And I, as I grew up, it must have been when I went to a Seder as an undergraduate, which is one of the very first non-family Seders that I went to. Went to a Seder at Amherst where I was an undergraduate. Then everybody started singing Echad Miyodea. What is this song? I don't know this song. And it suddenly occurred to me that not everybody sang these melodies. Hmm. And that planted a seed, I think, and it took a little while for that seed to blossom, but it did blossom. And my work has not been specifically about Passover songs, although there's certainly an avenue open there. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking for a formative experience in Jewish music, singing at Passover is yeah. the great one for me. Right. And realizing how fundamentally different your perspective of what the Seder should be like was from everyone you were now encountering when you reached university. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's fascinating. When you were an undergrad, what were you studying at Amherst? I double majored in music and theater and dance with what I thought was the intention to become a Broadway stage actress. All right. Music because I liked music and I did not become a Broadway stage actress, but I did become an ethnomusicologist. There's one thing every woman's missed in Massachusetts. Don't smirk at me, you egotist pay heed to what I say. We've gone from Framingham to Boston and we cannot find a pin. How did you get from Passover Satyrs and thinking you were going to be a Broadway stage actress to a PhD at University of Chicago? If I were to write an autobiography, I don't know what I'd call it because one of my best friends has taken the title. It seemed like a good idea at the time. (laughs) I love that. So I graduated from Amherst and moved to Chicago, which should probably have been a first clue that Broadway stage acting was not in my future. And I had a nine to five job and there was a synagogue walking distance of my house that I went to and it was nice. And for the very first time in my life, the only thing that anybody expected of me was to show up at nine o'clock, work until five o'clock, and then go away. Mm -hmm. And all those hours I had free. You can spend your evening, particularly if you are a young single woman in a big city, doing whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And what I found that I liked doing, this was a reform synagogue. I loved going to the Friday night services. A very interesting mix of people. It was very well attended. I loved the cantor there. She was very, very exciting lady, played the guitar and had a soprano voice that I couldn't sing along with because, you know, I became an alto when I was 12. And I also loved hanging out and making music. I became a shape note singer in college, and I've been a shape note singer ever since. That's actually an enormous part of my musical journey. And I found that I love making music. One of the reasons that I loved going to the synagogue in Chicago was because it was such a singy congregation. Mm -hmm. Every Friday night, you could just bust loose and sing. 
and on Thursday nights and occasionally on some Sundays, there was shape note singing. And I just loved being in the company of people making music. And that was sort of what got me thinking that what I should do with my life is what I liked doing, which was being with people making music. That is not to become a concert pianist, but to be an ethnomusicologist, to look at, to study, to examine how people make music in communities. And I really liked this synagogue that I was at, and I loved the music that we sang there. So it sort of seemed natural to want to think about sacred music. Again, I have the synagogue on Friday nights, but I also have shape note singing on Thursday nights. So I have these two very different types of sacred slash semi-sacred music. So that was sort of how the idea fermented. gave me the idea that there could be a research question that I could ask. A friend of mine was diagnosed with breast cancer mm-hmm. and she, as one might expect, was terrified of this diagnosis. All of us in that group were trying to do what we could to bring her some form of comfort. Her doctors were considering various options. Among the options is chemotherapy chemotherapy will cause your hair to fall out. And like a lot of women, she was worried about this. Hair is such a part of your self-image and losing it is one more indignity that cancer patients go through. And so I was thinking about this and I remember that many years earlier, the department secretary in the academic department where my dad worked had been diagnosed with breast cancer because my dad is a very, very kind and compassionate person, he personally escorted her to Williamsburg, to Brooklyn, to the very Hasidic neighborhoods in Brooklyn, to go to a scheidel shop, Hmm. to purchase a scheidel for when her hair fell out. And it turns out, as it happens, that a lot of scheidel shops do this secondary business with cancer patients. And so my dad had told me about this and it had sort of stuck in the junk drawer in the back of my mind. And then my friend was diagnosed with breast cancer and was worried among many, many other things about losing her hair. And I can't take away the cancer, but maybe I said, I might be able to help this one little way. Said that I lived in Chicago and I knew where you would find a Scheidel in New York, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know where you'd find one in Chicago. And so I thought, who do I ask? Well, I asked the most professionally Jewish woman that I know, who happened to be the cantor of the synagogue that I was going to. So after the service, I went to her and she said, oh, yes, I have a cousin who's Orthodox, who wears a scheidel. You go to this neighborhood, you know, Devon Avenue and Rogers Park. There's certainly places there where you can find someone who will help your friend. And this was good. And I went home. And it suddenly occurred to me that the only reason that I'd thought to ask the cantor this question was because of the story that I'd heard from my dad. So I decided to call my dad and I wanted to thank him for giving me the idea. So I gave him the bare bones of the story and I wanted to thank him. And I said, so I went to the synagogue and I talked to the cantor about it. And she said, and he interrupted me and he wasn't angry. He wasn't distressed. He was just very, very puzzled. He's a man who had not been to a synagogue since his 
essentially since his own bar mitzvah in 1960. And he said to me, she? Hmm. Since Cantor been she? Huh. And he was very confused. And I couldn't imagine that the Cantor hadn't been she. I mean, I must have known that you only ever saw pictures of men from ye olden days, but I didn't know. It seemed perfectly natural to me that the cantor should be she. And I said to him, I don't know. And a year or two later, I was doing a master's degree at University of Wisconsin. I did that before I went to the University of Chicago. And at that point, I had not picked a research specialty. This must, must have been in my first year before I was told, now you have to be an ethnomusicologist who specializes in something. This was me sort of learning my very first year of grad school, learning what ethnomusicology was. And I think I was taking a class on research methods. And it occurred to me suddenly that here I was literally in a research library. And that question bubbled up in my mind, since when has a cantor been she? And I said, wait a minute. One of the things that I can do here is I'm gaining the skills to answer that question. And so I used my brand new research skills that the <laughs> University of Wisconsin were teaching me. And I started poking around and I did not write my master's thesis about women cantors. I wrote my master's thesis about music and Holocaust memory. But the question remained because what I discovered while looking at it was that it's a big question. Since when has a cantor been she? It has a specific answer, but it has also a very broad answer. And that answer was too big for a master's thesis. Right. That would have to be a PhD dissertation. Aha. Uh -huh. And so that's what I did for my PhD. I answered the question, since when has the cantor been she? And I explained how women came to be cantors, what had happened to Jewish practice once women became cantors, how feminism impacted Judaism, how the idea of women's bodies and women's voices changed the sonic space of the synagogue. There are several answers, in fact, to the question, when did the cantor become she? If you don't like somebody and you want them to go away, you just say 1975 and you leave. Right. But while I was working on my dissertation, Judy Panolis came out with an article about a woman cantor in San Francisco in 1888, which was, I believe, 70 years before what we all thought was the first woman cantor. And right. Yes. Julie Rosewald. Yeah, the idea of women in this position and what a woman's leadership in prayer meant, how women redefined what it meant to be a cantor. And I wrote a dissertation about women cantors because my dad asked me one day, since when has a cantor been she? I love that. Sometimes we stumble onto the questions, be they for research or otherwise, that will come to define who we are and how we understand ourselves just mm -hmm. by complete accident. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on, I wanted to ask you about some of the people or even one person that has been your biggest personal advocate throughout your scholarly journey. 
I'm going to start with some of the people that inspire me and motivate me. I never liked the language of role models because everybody's role is different. And if you model yourself too closely on one person, you're not A, fitting into the role that you have and B, you're not doing what you could be doing. Right. So I prefer instead to talk about people who have influenced me, who've shaped me, who've guided me, people that I want to make proud of me, for instance. And there are many of them. And they're not all Jewish music people. They're not all music people, but I'll tell you about some of them. I would say that the first person, of course, we've talked about is my dad. He recently retired as the Woodhouse Cisco Professor of Economics at Wesleyan University. And that title, it's a very long title, but it does not come close to explaining what it is that he does because he was not just a model for me in scholarship. It's a model for me in ways of thinking about the world. His scholarship is in the intersection of law and economics. He studies law, he studies history, he studies economics. He is a dedicated music fan. He is probably the biggest fan of Bach and Glenn Gould together since ever. And what he taught me, first of all, he has been one of my biggest supporters ever since I was sitting in the kitchen at one point saying, I think I might want to go to grad school. Do you think I can? Do you think I have the ability to do the work? And he didn't hesitate, said, yes, you have the ability to do this and we will support you in doing this. So not just the sort of family emotional support, we are behind you 100%. He is a wonderful model in how to think, not just interdisciplinarily, how to think without noticing the bounds of discipline to begin with. How to start from a question that will impact some aspect of human life. How do law and economics intersect? Since when has a cantor been she? And see where that question takes you. So for me, it's taken me into music. And it's taken me into the ways that people think about prayer. It's taken me into the ways that we think about professionalization. It's taken me into how in the history of the United States have we legally defined clergy? What can a clergy person do? It's taken me into the development of Jewish ritual. It's taken me into Jewish history, the history of Jewish migration. Yes, it's ethnomusicology, but it's all these other things. And it's so much more interesting if you don't start thinking of yourself as, oh, I am going out and I'm crossing disciplinary boundaries. <laughs> it's so much better if you just say, I want to study this aspect of Jewish life and how it impacts and how when you tap one thread of the web, the whole web vibrates. And along that line, not my dad, but somebody else who is almost as academically close, would be my dissertation advisor, Phil Bowman, who also thinks like this. One of the greatest days of my life was graduating from the University of Chicago and finally getting to seat my dad and Phil Bowman at the same <laughs> table together and watch them just have a very, very long conversation about the humanities. Phil does very much the same sort of thing. He'll start from a question he will just ignore the fact that disciplinary boundaries exist sometimes. There are other times when he's very conscious in a sort of performative way. These are the moments where he'll say, I'm a musicologist because all ethnomusicologists are musicologists right. because musicology needs to expand to encompass what is traditionally thought of as ethnomusicology. 
And he'll go off on his research questions, which are sort of similar to mine in some ways and very different from mine in other ways. But watching the way Phil does it has been quite amazing. I would also count my master's advisor, Lois Anderson, who gave me the rigor to keep asking why, where. Her research area is music in Uganda, but she was perfectly willing to advise a thesis on music in the Holocaust. But she wanted me to back up everything. She taught me how to dig deep and find the question beneath the question. I'll just list a few other people. As a collective, the Women Cantors Network. I came across them on a Google search, Women Cantors. The first thing came up was the Women Cantors Network. The Women Cantors Network as a group has been wonderful, loving, supportive. I came to them and said, hi, I'm a grad student and I want to research you. And they said, welcome, come to our conference, come and participate. We'd love to have you write something about us. This is great. Let us follow your work. Let us support you. Let us and sing and dance for you when you get your PhD. (laughs) And they have actually supported me as I've started learning how to lead services. So the Women Cantors Network, my sisters in song, they are there with me in everything that I do. And I think finally, I would like to mention a relatively new friend, my friend Diaolong Shen, who lives in Taiwan. He is a professor of musicology at National Tsinghua University in Shinju, which is sort of about a third of a way down the west coast of Taiwan. And we were introduced by a mutual friend and we emailed for a while. You know, I have uh, done copy editing for the work that he writes in English and he invited me last fall to help him co-teach a course of thesis writing online at National Tsinghua University. And we are getting ready to do another course. I'm going to be teaching a course in music and culture. And Tialong will be my loyal person on the ground who speaks Chinese and actually knows what's going on. It's amazing. And as we have developed this relationship where we read and discuss each other's work. And when we talk about this work, we talk about each other's work. I come from a particular perspective and he comes from a particular perspective. And it's wonderful. We exchange these long emails where we ask questions. We say, how does this play out in Taiwan versus how does this play out in the United States? How do we understand the concept of empire? How do we understand the concept of nation, of identity? And we talk about opera, we talk about performance. And what I love about these conversations is that Jiaolong is just so open and interested. I mean, he has his research sphere and he's so interested in everything. And I love the way that he likes to talk about things, that he likes to push back, he likes to challenge. And I love his enthusiasm just to open the world of music, to say there's this whole world of music out there that I never knew about. And then that inspires me to look deeper into the music of places that maybe we don't think about, like Taiwan. There's a whole world of music and influence and identity politics and kind of jockeying for position. And so we have this literally cross-global exchange. And I find that unbelievably inspiring. That is so inspiring. Questions I have that I would use perhaps to follow up on what you've said and which you've touched on now in a couple of different ways have to do with the methodological tools or models that you most often use when you are developing these questions and engaging and thinking the way that you're not role models 
<laughs> think. But also you talked a little bit about your teaching, your co-teaching with this wonderful scholar from Taiwan. And I think many scholars celebrate the opportunity to teach others as an extension of their own research pursuits. So I wondered if you could talk to me a little bit also about maybe any recent lectures or teaching you've done and how that has expanded or related to your own research. I always start from a place of participant observation. I'm also fairly sure that half of the interviewees that you have on this podcast will tell you the same thing. You can certainly do background reading. You can read up on the history of a community, and you're not going to know anything about it until you go and you see it for yourself. And it's always, always instructive just to walk in and experience. There is a mystery to experience. And you're never going to be able to convey it in writing, but you're never going to be able to write about anything if you haven't stood in the center of the experience. So participant observation, absolutely. Go and experience, feel it, listen to the way the cantor is singing, listen to the guitar, watch as people put their arms around each other, watch as the cantor starts to sing Matovu and everybody kind of relaxes or the cantor starts to sing Debbie Friedman's Miriam song at the kids service and the little kids get up and dance and the little kids who are not quite really able to walk yet, they get up and dance too. To be and to have those experiences and then when you're there, whether or not it's your own community or once you've been there, then you can start to find the questions to write about. You start to say, why does this happen? What does it mean for it to happen this way? And you start to know who the people are who can tell you the stories that might answer these questions. And you never, ever rely just on one person because everybody in that community has a story. So that is the way that I would describe my methodology. And it's terribly unscientific. And you asked about teaching. Mm -hmm. I love teaching. I love the experience of being with a group of learners and being able to tell them a story to share with them things that they didn't know, to see their eyes light up as they make connections, and to know that it's not just me opening up people's skulls and pouring knowledge into empty little minds. That's not teaching. It's giving them resources that they didn't know that they had, giving them experiences that they hadn't had. You can see when their eyes light up and they've made a connection. This past January, I taught an online course for my synagogue called Encountering Becky's Musical Heritage, which is a very clunky way of saying, I want to look into the melodies that we sing at our pretty standard conservative synagogue in New Haven. And where did they come from? What can we learn about the background of this music? How did our synagogue soundscape come to be the way it is? What pieces are traditional? What pieces have we maybe forgotten the composers to, but we should learn about the composers because they have interesting stories. What are the elements that came together to create the musical tapestry that we call the Becky Shabbat service? And it was amazing because this was an adult education course for the synagogue. So the people who tuned in were people who were already basically interested in synagogue music. And it was so wonderful because sometimes I'd be telling a story and somebody would say, oh, yes, I know that tune. Here's another side story about how we encountered it or something else about this composer. We talked about how tunes become identified with people 
and how it's fine to keep that identification, but also know that they're identified with a composer to say we can experience this melody as the Lador Vador that Jonathan sings and to know that there's a composer of that and that we can keep both things in our minds at once and to see everybody going, oh yes, because everybody knows and loves Jonathan and then saying, and this is where it came from and this is the background to it. So what I love is watching people make these connections and to show them perhaps a different way of looking at the world, maybe to show them some tools for thinking about the world and to see people say, oh yes, here's a way that I can grow and that I can go out into the world and see more. You've been with the Women's Cantor Network as a participant, as an observer. This has formed an important part of who you are, but also of your scholarship. Is that still where your research questions and subjects are percolating from, or are you exploring new directions nowadays? Uh, Yes, that is yes to both of these questions. I don't see that there's ever a reason to give up on a research topic, that you will never squeeze a research topic dry. I'm still thinking about the ways that we use music to incorporate the cultural memory of the Holocaust into our sense of tribal history. That was way back with my master's thesis. I did not leave that behind in 2006. That's still there. My work with the Women Cantors Network and with the phenomenon of women cantors in general is layered onto that. And it's related. If you start from the Holocaust and then you start realizing why did women start to become cantors really en masse in the middle of the 20th century? Why were synagogues willing to accept women or girls leading services? Well, you realize the Holocaust, in fact, had a lot to do with that. A lot of the Mm -hmm. star cantors from Europe had been murdered. And in fact, a whole cultural reference point, the European Jewish community had been, for most intents and purposes, wiped off the face of the earth, leaving the American Jewish community as, at that point, the largest community in the world and a community that was not no longer bound by ties to Europe, but could do things its own way. And so there was a need for people to lead services, and they needed more people than you could get just through apprenticeship. So this led to cantorial schools, and it also led to women who could Mm -hmm. sing, stepping up and leading their congregations. So you have a connection then between work on the Holocaust and work on women's roles in the service. My next project is about music in British synagogues. That grew straight away out of my work on women cantors. When I was first emailing with the Women Cantors Network, I learned that there were a couple of women cantors in England. At that point in 2010, when I was starting this research, there were two, count them, two women cantors in England. And I was unbelievably lucky and I got to go to England and I got to interview both of them. They're really amazing people. And they told me these fascinating stories, both very different stories of how they came to be women cantors in England. And at the end of that, I flew home, but I was also thinking, I need to read a book about 
music in British reform and Masorti synagogues, because I clearly, they've told me these stories and I clearly don't have the background. I need to read a book about this. And so I went home and there wasn't a book. Hmm. And I said, well, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. Absolutely. And so the next project, which I have published several articles on with at least one or two more coming down the pipeline, is exploring the sound world of liberal and reform and Masorti congregations in England. And that is, of course, one question I might not have asked before is how many Jews live in the UK? Where do they live? Why do they live there? The census data that we have to operate with only covers England and Wales, does not cover Scotland or Northern Ireland. So what I can tell you, for instance, is that the population of England and Wales that identifies as Jewish is roughly the same size as the Jewish population of the greater Philadelphia area. So again, you have a very different scale of Jewish population. You have a very different history of how it came to have a reform movement. You have a slightly different approach to what it means to what kind of music you'd want to sing, the way that you would perform the liturgy, but you also have a language in common with this really, really, really big Jewish population on the other side of the pond that is kind of interested in you. It's been very interesting to see, particularly to see from my perspective as an American, what this reform and liberal and Masorti English Jewish population, how they work with music and what kind of music they produce and where they're coming from musically. And to see how both communities, which are very interested in each each other, and I think This is something that happens on both sides of this relationship. You assume that because you have a language in common, you'll have much more in common than you do. Mm. But it's interesting to find the places that maybe you don't have in common. But that project came out of this work on women cantors. There are two in England. Why are there only two in England? They're very interesting. What does this say about global Jewish worship? What does this say about global Jewish approaches to women in leadership? I've also learned, while I was there, I learned this wonderful melody for Adon Olam. It's by David Aaron DeSola. Adon Olam, Asher Malach, Beterem Kol, Yetzir Nivra, Liet Nasa, absolutely beautiful it's an early 19th century melody composed by david aaron de sola who was the hazen at the bevis marx synagogue which is the spanish and portuguese synagogue in london he had immigrated from the netherlands and this is a tune that everybody in england as far as i can tell if i were to walk into any english synagogue and start singing this i think people would sing along with me Almost nobody in the U.S. knows this tune. It's beautiful. Everybody in England knows it. 
It's in the Blue Book, which it was a collection of synagogue music that the United Synagogue put out around the turn of the 20th century. And it happened to be the favorite Adon Olam melody of one of the women at the synagogue that I attended where I was based in Cambridge in England. If she was leading services, you knew that was the Adon Olam tune that we were going to end with. And she was such a central and beloved member of the congregation. And she led services on a regular basis. She was so identified with leading this tune that people would call it her Adon Olam. She didn't compose it. She just really liked to sing it. And that got me thinking, what does it mean for this to be her Adon Olam? What, for instance, would it mean for there to be Jonathan's Lador Vador at my synagogue in New Haven now? What does it mean that we identify pieces of music with individual congregants? What does it also mean that maybe we don't know who composed them? Because as I started to think about that question, I thought about the ways that you learn music in a service. Bottom dropped out of the synagogue hymnal market in 1970. So there's no books. We don't have a book that gives you the sheet music, the title of the tune, the poet, the name of the composer, which is what you'd have in a hymnal. So we don't have all of this meta information. We learn music by ear. And we learn that there's a person. And you learn that there's so much more to that. And then you start to wonder why it is that we, a people who are very famously good at studying texts and good at citing texts, and we just say, oh yeah, that tune's been around forever. That's the old traditional tune. Nobody knows where that one came from. And I started wondering, I thought about interviews that I'd done. I'd interviewed a lot of people in many different countries at that point. And one of the questions that I sometimes ask in interviews is, what's your very favorite piece of Jewish music? And a lot of liturgical melodies don't have names. They're not like Christian hymns, which have names. Jewish liturgical melodies don't have names. They're called after their texts. So all Adon Olam melodies are called Adon Olam. All settings of Osei Shalom are called Osei Shalom. So it's very hard to talk about them. And so people can't just say, oh, my favorite piece is Qumranda, which is a Welsh hymn. Or my favorite piece is Leone. People say, my favorite piece of Jewish music goes like this, and they sing it. And that was what led to my most recent layer of research that I called the songs that go like this. These are melodies that we sing in our congregations that move by ear from congregation to congregation. Sometimes we know who composed them. Sometimes we've forgotten who composed. A lot of times we think they're a lot older than they are. And so for that layer of research, I ask the question, A, you know, where do these come from? Jeffrey Goldberg has done a lot of wonderful research into how the conservative movement created the concept of congregational singing. There's a reason that some of those melodies are as singable as they are. They were designed that way. So where they come from, and then why we transmit them like this. What is the benefit that we as a community gain from teaching music by ear, from say, from attributing it to the Lador Vador that Jonathan sings, or Sheila's Adon Alam, or that piece that the kids picked up at summer camp. What is the benefit to the community of doing that? So why do we do it? And then what are the, what are the risks? Because it's giving us something, but it's taking something away from us as well. The real key for this research area for me is not to come down on one side or the other. 
I have a perspective. I think that the identities of composers and their histories should not fade from Jewish memory. But I also completely understand and agree with why we teach music this way and that it does something for us, which is why I volunteered to teach that class at the synagogue, because I think that we should learn the history of our music, but the service is not the place to do it. So the place to do it is in something like an adult education program or even the youth education program. Say, we're not going to talk about this in services. In services, it's time to experience the music, to experience the mystery of it, to listen to the service go smoothly from one melody to the other and to experience the musical shape of worship as a whole. But because two things can be true at the same time, also to know and to keep in the back of your mind that somebody created these tunes and somebody taught them and that we approach them in a certain way for particular reasons. Absolutely. Well, thank you very, very much for joining me today. And before I let you go, I have the quintessential question to ask you, which is, if you believe that there is such a thing as Jewish music or Jewish sound, and if so, why or why not? How would you characterize it? And of course, if this question is just too essentializing, what questions about music or sound in Jewish experience would you ask instead? I think that there is and there is not such a thing as Jewish music. I don't think that there is one singular sensation that you can call Jewish music, because I don't think at this point, we've been a people in diaspora for over 2000 years, there is no longer one singular sensation that you can call the Jewish people. The Jewish people is a thing. We can talk about being MOTs, members of the tribe. But then when we look at the tribe, we realize that the tribe lives all over the world. The tribe comes in all different colors. The tribe speaks all different languages. The tribe is of many different genders and of many, many different approaches to life. The tribe has been doing this for 2000 years. We are a famously adaptable people. And one of the ways that we adapt is by moving our culture in incremental little ways. Just the fact that there are Ashkenazim, there are Sephardim, there are Mizrahi Jews, there are Indian Jews, there are Georgian Jews, there are Lithuanian Jews, there are American Jews, there are English Jews. There are the fact that the American Jews and English Jews aren't quite the same people. And there's so many different variations. I think of Jewish music as a world music, a little microcosm of world music. There's a core of Jewishness, but we're all very different. And that honestly is one of the things that I love about Jewish music. It's so many different kinds of music that's all tied to a certain concept of peoplehood, to the idea of the Hebrew language, to our central story as a people, to the history of being stubbornly who we are in the face of the entire world wanting us not to be, of going out into diaspora and of encountering the world and of this constant negotiation. What does it mean to be Jewish in this place, in this time? And we express that in music. And I love it. 
There are a lot of people who lament the death of authenticity in the liturgical music world. And there's this new music that doesn't sound Jewish. It sounds popular. And then I talk to other members of congregations who will say, my musical roots are closer to Mahalia Jackson than to Yossela Rosenblatt. And they're both right. There's room for it all. I don't think there's a limit to where Jewish music can go. It all comes back to Jews living in the world and being Jewish and figuring out how to be Jewish in that place and that time and what it means for them. And it expands the concept of what Jewishness is. It expands the music that we love to listen to. It means that you can have a wonderful medley just in a Shabbat service now that goes from 1850 to something composed yesterday. And it's brilliant. And it all kind of fits together because we are in the end a people. We're just a really diverse people. Is there such a thing as Jewish music? Yes. Is it definable by one set of characteristics? No. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist though. Awesome. What a great place to leave things. Thank you so, so much, Rachel, for your time today and for joining me on the podcast. I can't wait to see what you do next. Me either. Whatever it is, it will have seemed like a good idea at the time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors, the American Society for Jewish Music, the Milken Center for Music of American Jewish Experience at UCLA, and Harvard University Center for Jewish Studies. Tune in next month when I will be joined by Dr. Asaf Shaleg to discuss his ongoing study of art music by and about Jews.